BKS 26 is powered by Cliff Central, uncensored, unhinged, and unradio. Hello and welcome to the Digital Kung Fu Show, a podcast and videocast for startup founders and entrepreneurs. Even if you're alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs across the world hustling today's markets. At Digital Kung Fu, we have one goal, to help entrepreneurs succeed in their ventures through information sharing, digitally connecting them with other entrepreneurs, and by dissecting and deconstructing the world's leading business minds right here on this show. Remember, you can view the full show notes on our website at digitalkungfu.co. .za or tweet this show using our handle at digitalkungfuza or follow us on facebook.com slash digitalkungfuza. As startup founders, we often are in pursuit of the vision, right? Which is to build a big company that's making a huge dent in the world as we know it. Um, but really, do we really have insights into what it's like to run a company that truly has achieved um, amazing success. So I reached out to Rand Fishkin. He's the uh, Wizard of Moz or the founder of Moz uh, based out in Seattle in America. And I wanted to find out from him what it was like for him to really grow Moz from a consulting company to a company which today um, has got numerous investors and currently over 200 staff. And pay particular attention to two things. One, we discuss why he decided to step down as CEO of Moz. And two, when he did a CEO swap kind of thing with Will Reynolds, the CEO of Sierra Interactive. And we explore what he learned in that experience too. So without further ado, enter Rand Fishkin. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 26th edition of the Digital Kung Fu Show. My name is Matt, and I'd like to kick us off with a quote by Jim Ron. Quote, if you really want to do something, you'll find a way. If you don't, you'll find an excuse. Our guest today is Rand Fishkin, the founder of the Seattle-based Moz, one of the most visible companies in the marketing world, uh, and which includes an online community of more than 1 million globally-based digital marketers. So Rand, thank you for your time today. It's great to have you in the hot seat. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Matt. No, you're very welcome. Very excited about uh, this this episode in particular. Cool. So why don't you uh, kick us off uh, by giving us a kind of a quick overview of your entrepreneurial journey to date, and then we'll dive um, straight into the main course of Moz after that. Sure. So let's see. I dropped out of college in 2001 and started working at my mom's uh, small marketing consultancy business that she'd been running for about 20 years, helping folks with... Uh, you know, yellow page ads, business cards, letterhead, logo, all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and her clients started needing websites. So I, in high school, I had actually started designing some websites and then uh, did that in college as well. And finally, uh, full-time with her in 01. And by 2004, um, we were struggling quite a bit. And I... Uh, we had been subcontracting some SEO folks to help out with uh, the search engine optimization needs of our web design clients, but we couldn't afford to pay them. And so uh, I had to take that on myself. And so I started learning the practice of SEO and started a blog uh, called seomaz.org. And that blog was kind of a side project uh, for a couple years, but by the end of 05, it became, you know, uh, how we were getting a lot of clients and folks started asking us for SEO services. 
And so we moved the company into SEO consulting. Um, We were very deeply in debt, but uh, thanks to, you know, kind of the consulting over the next couple of years, uh, we were able to pay that back and dig ourselves out of a hole. And in 2007, uh, we launched a set of a series of tools that you could subscribe to that was kind of a, you know, we didn't really know what a SaaS subscription was, but it was the, the early nascent beginnings of that for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that took off uh, the middle of that year. It was about half and half uh, our, of our revenue was coming each from consulting and uh, from the software product. Got it. And at the end of that year, we raised, uh, we raised around with Ignition Partners um, of $1.1 million uh, and started to pursue software as kind of our, our full-time thing. Um, they asked me to become the CEO. And uh, for the next six years, seven years, uh, I, was, I was Mazda's CEO. Um, we grew the business you know, about 100% year over year um, mm. until... 2013 or so, and then growth sort of slowed down to about 50%, and then uh, had some challenges after that in, in 2014, 15, um, slowed to around 20, 25% growth. Okay. And uh, in 2014, I stepped down as Mazda's CEO, um, and my longtime chief operating officer. Uh, Sarah Bird, I, I promoted her to that role, and she's been running the company since, and um, you know, doing a fantastic job of uh, getting us back on track and okay. growing the business again. Awesome, awesome, and we'll touch on uh, on why you stepped down a bit later. Um, now, many of our listeners won't know that you are, in fact, not a software engineer. Uh, no, I but, know. Yeah, exactly. But despite all that, um, you've managed to build Moz into a highly reputable software company that's today um, over 200 people strong. Um, So what do you attribute your success to despite not having a deep understanding of the context that produces your products? Well, uh, let's see, two things. One, I I don't consider myself or Moz particularly successful. And I know that sounds a little weird, but... um, It does. (laughs) Well, so, uh, you know, a, a venture-backed company has a specific goal, right? Uh, limited yes. partners invest in venture capital firms uh, with the expectation that they're going to return, you know, produce significant returns from that investment. And VCs likewise invest in companies expecting, you know, that um, they will have a financial exit. And Moz has not produced that yet. So I would say that is uh, something we're still striving toward either either an IPO or, uh, you know, an acquisition. Mm. But um, despite Moz's growth, we have not, you know, we have not achieved the uh, return on investment for the funds that put money into us. And so uh, that is a, you know, that weighs pretty heavily on my shoulders and, and hopefully the shoulders of, uh, of everyone at Moz. <laughs> but yeah, it makes for a very, it, it's a different kind of, uh, of business and company, right? Mm. Uh, you can't say, well, hey, you know, we're, um, we're growing and we're profitable and, uh, you know, we have a lot of people, so we're successful. Uh, that, is, that is not the case. You are successful when you uh, mm. make your investors their money back. Yeah, exactly. And they're typically looking for a 10x return for tech startups these days, aren't they? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it depends on the stage at which they invest. So, for example, our, our early stage investors, Ignition, would certainly be looking for that you know, 5 to 10x number. Mm-hmm. Our later stage investors, uh, Foundry Group, who put in, they put in, uh, what, around, I think about $25 million over the last two rounds. Uh, that was one in 2012 and one in uh, the beginning of this year, 2016. Mm-hmm. And they would be looking for more like a maybe three, four, five X return. So, okay. Uh, when you invest in a later stage company, that anticipation of return uh, yeah. is not quite as high. Thank yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we have enough. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, certainly, you know, still a, a very, um, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of pressure. Even I would say our investors are very hands-off, very, you know, kind, empathetic, uh, people. And I'm, I'm, you know, good friends with, uh, with both the folks who invested in us. Um, and still, Brad, Brad and uh, Michelle, right? Sorry, Brad and Michelle. Yeah. Yeah. Brad Feld and, and Michelle Goldberg. That's right. Yeah. Let's unpack that a bit. Have you read a book called, um, hatching Twitter? Oh, no, I haven't. Uh, Nick Bilton's book. No, I want to, but I haven't read it. Yeah, I finished it this week. Um, And one of the things that really stood out for me um, in that book was the um, amount of conflict or headbutting between the CEOs and the investors. Mm. Um, And I'm sure you'll agree that it's a kind of a, it's a common theme in many startups today. You know, the founders want to go in one direction. The investors have their own sort of agenda with trying to get that 10x or 3x return, depending on what stage of the startup that they invest in and so on. So, um, so obviously we touched on Brad and Michelle as being your investors. So in the Moz context, what have you learned about the critical dynamic between the CEO and his or her investors? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, both Sarah and I have had um, what I would call extremely positive, very supportive relationships um, with Brad and Michelle. And actually uh, this year, Brad Feld stepped off of our board and Seth Levine, uh, another partner at Foundry, uh, moved on to our board. And Seth, you know, we've been friends with him for a long time too and, and like him a lot. And it was sort of a, you know, Brad's uh, book was getting very full and Seth has worked with a number of SaaS companies successfully in the past. And so mm-hmm. it sort of made sense to uh, to make that transition. And obviously we still get to hang out with Brad and, and hear from yeah. him, but... Uh, Seth is on our board. And I would say, you know, our relationship has been man, uh, almost never contentious. I remember maybe one, one strong disagreement with Michelle uh, very early on, like 2008. Um, and even then it was, a, you know, I strongly disagree, but, you know, Randy, you're the CEO. It's your company. Mm. You, you do what you think is right. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I, uh, I have actually, I actually have given the feedback, uh, to my investors that I wish they were tougher with me uh-huh. um, when like I was mentors, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say they were, um, they were very much like mentors and friends and that, that has been wonderful and magical. Um, you know, and I mean magical in terms of kind of an experience that's hard to, describe and encapsulate it's um you know it's it's part friendship but it's also this um financial degree of support and this um you know looking at at the business and the company and all the people in it from this high level and um yeah i mean 
Michelle in particular, because she's in Seattle, you know, she's put in hours coaching and mentoring uh, people in Moz's executive team. And, um, you know, even, uh, even our, our entry level staff at, at, at points along the, <laughs> the journey um, in the early stages. So really um, a partner in a lot of ways too. Yeah. Which is incredibly valuable because oftentimes yeah. you get like just VCs and obviously, you know, us or me being in South Africa, there's definitely not a venture capital culture here like there is in America. And, um, you know, VCs are oftentimes very much, as we say, like getting that return. Um, And oftentimes I find that's, or at least with the CEOs that I've interviewed, that VCs oftentimes are not brutally honest with the founders. Um, there's yeah. be a kind of a let's powder coat it's a little bit sort of thing until things get to a point where they need to step in and then suddenly you find like in the hatching Twitter book that <laughs> you no longer right. you no longer being asked to be the CEO you know yep yep I think that's uh, that's certainly a, a tough one and you know thankfully for me it was it was a decision that I got to make to step down um, and to promote Sarah but uh, you know still a very that was still a very tough and, con- and hard one for me. It was not, um, wasn't contentious, right? It didn't come from the board where yes. they said, Hey, you know, we, we need you to do this. You're no longer CEO, you mm-hmm. know, vote of no confidence, that kind of thing. Yeah. Which is a, a huge feather in your cap. But let's talk about, um, the reason why you stepped down and it was for personal reasons, depression, which you write about on your blog. By the way, I think you have an amazingly authentic voice when you write. It's actually really refreshing and very rare, I think, to find, okay. um, someone in your position to be able to share the brutal truth about who you are and, and the decisions that you've made in business. So I respect you immensely for that. Um, but, you know, depression is something that I've also suffered from in the past. Um, and you describe your relationship with the stepping down uh, as CEO as being complicated, quote unquote. Um, so when you look back now, what stands out for you as, um, as learnings uh, now that you have experience of being on both sides of the coin? One side of the coin obviously being the CEO side and more recently uh, from the perspective of um, being an employee, I guess, as it were. Yeah, yeah I think um, I think it's good. It's a, you know, it's sort of healthy to be able to have real empathy for employees. I, you know, as an employee, uh, have experienced that that sort of like fear of um, of getting fired. The um, and and worrying about you know how would how would Geraldine and I pay the rent and, you know, what would we do about healthcare? And, um, you know, could I, could I find a job? Would anybody ever want to hire me? I'm sort of an asshole. Like, you know, (laughs) so those kinds of things, as well as, um, experiencing the, you know, what it is like to, uh, spend time with people on my team as not the CEO because you you get treated very differently and you're you hear very different things mm. um, when you spend time with you know employees and team members um, and you're another one of them instead of the CEO of the company. Mm. The conversations at the water cooler seem to change quite a lot, don't they? Yeah, I mean we don't have a water cooler, but um, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but we, you know, we go out for beers sometimes or, you know, meet up on the weekends or, yeah. um, you know, hang out for social events or something. And, and that, uh, that experience has definitely changed a lot. 
Okay, awesome. Um, let's talk about some of the Mozza's products that you've launched, and you've launched several over the years, um, and um, highly successful ones at that. And you, you are of the opinion that startups should launch um, uh, exceptional viable products, yeah. uh, not minimum viable products. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Um, can you unpack the difference between uh, these terms uh, for us, and more specifically, the benefits of launching EVPs? Sure. Uh, so I think the, the culture around minimum viable products has become one where people say, "Hey, I want to, you know, I want to sort of test the waters and see if there's a market here. See if I produce a, you know, an early stage sort of." small, um, not necessarily crappy, but, you know, uh, barely acceptable, like, like just, just barely reaches the bar of solves the problem, the pain point for mm-hmm. people. I want to see if, uh, if that's, um, what the market wants. Yeah. Yeah. If that's what the market wants. And, uh, I have some deep concerns that you are not truly testing a market's viability by launching a minimum product. Okay. Um, and you're also very unlikely to stand out from the crowd or to get people to switch. You may have a substantially uh, better product or better solution to the pain point that they're experiencing now. But if you uh, want people to switch, you need to be massively better. There's sort of a you know um, an illustration that I drew for for a blog post that I wrote about this you know idea of exceptional viable product and it, it has this kind of you know dotted line of below this quality of a product below this you know um, this many times better than anything I'm using right now yeah. I'm not going to switch because people tend to value overvalue dramatically the product or solution that they are currently using and they tend to underestimate what a new product or a new solution can do it's just sort of a you know natural part of human psychology to do those things and because of that you need something really extraordinary to get over the bar i i think um you know a really great example of this is uh, is Slack recently. So Slack has obviously become a multi-billion dollar company and done this incredible work. And really, it's only, you know, a little bit better, in my opinion, than uh, the existing group chat programs out there. But they didn't go into the world of group chat and say, hey, let's launch a kind of crappy minimum, uh, you know, group chat tool and see if there's a market. They said, let's make something that's, you know, truly dramatically better than anything else out there. And then let's see if we can turn that into a market. And that is what happened, right? They made yeah. a substantially better product and they proved that there was a, a, a tremendous market in a market that, you know, many people had sort of given up on. They were like, well, you know, there's HipChat and there's a few others and they're making a few million dollars a year, but it, it's just not a big thing. And most yeah. people are happy with Gmail or whatever they've got. No, right? <laughs> um, Incredible. And I think that's, that's true for a lot of things too. Back when Google launched, folks did not feel that search was a very promising industry, right? There were a lot of search engines that already existed. Um, Google had to be dramatically better, way, way, way better than the existing search engines out there. And to do that, they did some things on the computer science side. They did things on the visual design side. They did things on the crawling and indexing side. And they launched a dramatically better search engine that got people to switch from their existing search engines over to Google 
at the time. And luckily, I think they, they launched at a time when switching costs were not that high uh, for folks to a new search engine. One of the reasons being, of course, that it's free. But um, <laughs> when they launched, remember, they, they promised they would never have advertising. Yeah, I remember that. Well, it was one of those. Uh, no, never. Never. <laughs> Twitter. No, no, no. Never, except uh, maybe two years from now, um, <laughs> and then forever after that. Yeah, uh, but yeah. So I think I think there's a a misnomer uh, in the startup world that a minimum viable product, especially if you concentrate on that word minimum, mm. as opposed to that word viable, uh, <laughs> will get you you know, a true test of the waters. Sure. Sure. I, I think that insight's really important to touch on. I think again, I'd like to unpack that a bit because, you know, um, if you let's hypothetically say that you're a startup and you do launch a minimum viable product for a, for a tech um, piece of software. Um, and then you do go through iterative reverts to build something better, right? So now you qualified the market, the problem and all that stuff. And you put all this effort and money and cost into this um, new version, right? Um, and invariably what you find as soon as you launch, more competitors are entering your category. Yeah. Um, and so there's a hell of a lot riding on the adoption of version 2.0. Mm-hmm. <laughs> isn't there? I mean, there's a shitload because there's a yeah. number of reasons. One, it's a better product. And, and more importantly, when you're looking at the uh, the commercial side of thing, you play the retention game full stop, right? That's the number one metric. Of course, there's others, of course, but um, in a SaaS offering, it's retention, I think, which is a critical uh, KPI. Um, so if they don't adopt, um, then the retention play starts to become a little bit of a gray area. Um, so in your opinion, why don't people without a significantly better product um, switch? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Well, I think, you know, it's like we talked about, the, the switching costs are much tougher than many startups perceive them to be. I think, I think even, even a quite extraordinary product um, in some sectors will find that, I mean, in some markets will find that switching costs are not just about the product itself. Um, there is... Uh, I was reminded of this recently. I was talking to um, um, a really quite extraordinarily talented uh, uh, woman entrepreneur in in our space in the in the world of uh, of search and marketing. Right. And she had uh, she had built a um, 
a listings website for the horse trailers world. She sort of identified that horse trailers was a very, you know, kind of uh, old school backwards industry. The the leading website in the field looked like it was, you know, from the 1990s and, you know, kind of this terrible experience. It was really hard for dealers to upload their inventory. It was really hard for customers to make purchases through it. It's just bad all around. And so she, she built this product that was this website, right. That was, I mean, 10 times better is putting it lightly. It was, <laughs> it, was just, it was awesome. I mean, one of the things that she did is she actually like, uh, you know, had a crawler that went and grabbed uh, a dealer's inventory, put it all uh, entirely onto the website. And so all the dealer needed to do was just say, yes, approve. And their inventory would be up there. They didn't have to upload anything or, you know, rewrite the description. So just, you know, made it super, super simple. Mm. And then she started, you know, trying to get people to, uh, to move to this website. And what she found is that, you know, the horse trailer world is actually a quite a small insular world. Uh, and that the owners, the dealers of horse trailers, almost all of them personally knew the person who ran the website <laughs> and had a good relationship with that family and were furious that someone else was trying to come into the field yeah. and uh, take their business. They felt that the the new website, they were like, it looks too fancy. It looks too uh, modern. I am used to this horse trailer website that I've been using for 15 years. Yeah. How dare you try and take my <laughs> business? You know, that, uh, that kind of a feedback. And so she sort of stopped working on the project and, uh, and moved on to other things. But that is a different kind of switching cost than merely the product. And I think that illustrates how many, many, many folks uh, work. You know, if you've ever tried to work in a regulated industry, um, in the medical field, for example, or the legal field, uh, or, you know, many, many others that have severe restrictions, um, you know, a lot of government guidelines, you, you will find a dramatic amount of difficulty mm. trying to enter and then pro- progress in those fields. Yeah, that's another great lesson uh, and point that you touched on as well, because there's more than just the platform switching costs. It's actually all these um, unquantifiable costs that exist within the ecosystem that you're actually playing in. Uh, Because often with software, in my experience, I find entrepreneurs, um, there isn't a one size fits all solution. So what they're doing is they're using one product for one particular thing and another product for another. But as you increase your scope with version 2.0, there's not enough reason for them to switch because they only actually use two features. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. Well, and so, um, you know, I, I had this experience at, at Moz recently, um, you know, for the last year, I, I worked on this tool called Keyword Explorer. And in January, we were supposed to launch the tool. That's when we promised sort of the internal team and, you know, everyone that we would launch. But I showed it to, you know, a number of our beta testers and some influential folks in the industry um, who, you know, are heavily into keyword research. Showed them this tool in January. And it was good. It was, I think it was good enough to where I would say it was better than anything else out there at the time. Mm. Not 10 times better, but, but better. And they were underwhelmed. They were like, I would not switch to this. Uh, I would keep using what I've got now. Um, this doesn't, you know, I'm not very impressed. And these are people, right, who are yeah. you know, friends of mine and been in the industry. So I'm expecting them to... Um, say something say else. Nicer things, <laughs> yeah, say nicer things than they really mean. Yeah. 
So uh, I canceled our launch. I moved it out four weeks, uh, sorry, four months. And I, you know, told the team, hey, we got to build these, uh, you know, these seven additional things into this. We need to make this this product dramatically better before we go public. We cannot uh, make a public launch that looks like this. And I think that um, when we did finally launch in early May, we had a lot of success. You know, the first uh, first month, six weeks, we had about a hundred thousand people use it, and um, you know, an incredible amount of of uh, good press and coverage. And I think now um, it's exciting. You know, it's fun for me. I go speak at a conference and I hear people get on stage and they sort of say, yeah, keyword explorer, that's the best keyword research tool out there. That's, that's awesome. Right. That's what I was going for. And the, um, I think that delay was critically important because if we had launched publicly in January and then started adding these features, you know, slowly over time and, um, uh, you know, getting it out there publicly, we would have made, a very crappy first impression. And then even if the product were, let's say, let's say two or three times better than it is today, a few months from now, I think it would still take years mm. to get people in, you know, our industry to try out the tool again and to say like, Hey, come on, it's way better than when you first saw it. Give it a chance. That is a much tougher argument than here's the first time I'm showing you a new thing. What do you think of this new thing? Yeah. Oh my God, I am blown away by that new thing. That new thing is incredible. Yeah. Right. Uh, I think Tesla is a great example of this, right? The, the, the first Tesla's come out and you're like, that is blow my mind. <laughs> Good. Just from, from all sorts of angles. And granted they're today, they're even way better in a bunch of aspects, but they were already, you know, way better than anything out in the market when they first came out. I think if they were, you know, uh, maybe a couple steps above the the Prius, you'd be like, well, it's another car. It doesn't impress me, right? It doesn't blow me away. It's not getting, you know, 99 out of 100 in car and driver's report. It's, you know, it's just another car. Yeah. Um, and I think launching, especially when you are an established player in a field mm. um, and you have a reputation already and you know that lots of people are going to come check you out. You know, when you're an early stage startup, you're just launching as your very first product. No one's going to hear about you anyway. And so it's a little bit safer to launch that minimum viable product. Yeah. I still, I would still bias you to the EVP, but it's safer, right? Because your, yeah. your reputation is not going to be uh, tanking based on that that early stage product. But if you are, you know, Moz and you've got, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in your community and, you know, 25,000 subscribers already, it, they, the expectation is different. Um, and the perception is going to be carried from launch day. Mm. The first time you see a product, that is when you form an association with it and changing the association that you have with a product and company mm. is an immense, immense task. It is, uh, truly hard to do. Mm-hmm. Apple don't launch minimum viable products, by the way. Yeah, they sure don't. <laughs> they sure don't. <laughs> cool. Um, so I think um, uh, one more question on value propositions and products. Uh, there's a quote by Bill Gurley, I think it was a tweet actually, uh, where he says, you know, quotes, uh, more startups die of indigestion than starvation. Uh, focus wins. Doing too many things fails. In quotes, um, if you could go back in time, what would you choose to focus on uh, in terms of Moz's value propositions? 
Yeah. Uh, I have thought about this way too much. <laughs> so, uh, let's see if I, it depends on, on when I could go back to, but assuming let's go back to, um, let's say 2007, I would build a single, uh, tool for SEOs that offered, uh, research data about, you know, um, links and keywords and competitors. And I would stick to that probably for many years of Moz's development, at least the first six or seven uh, before I tried to launch anything else. What I instead did was we probably over the course of, you know, the seven years that I was CEO tried to build more than a dozen different tools um, and, you know, not, not just features, but like independent individual pieces that you would use. And and there's still a legacy of that. You know, if you're a Moz subscriber today, there's kind of Moz Analytics, which is the big thing that tracks your your campaigns, your rankings, and all that. Uh, there's Open Site Explorer for links. There's Keyword Explorer for keywords. There's Fresh Web Explorer for uh, fresh links and mentions. There's the Moz Bar, the toolbar you can install in Firefox and Chrome. Uh, we have an entirely separate business with Moz Local that helps with local listings. We bought a company called Follower Wonk that does uh, Twitter analytics, and we initially rolled that into the, the Moz subscription and then broke it back out, and now it's its own tool. Uh, we have a product called Moz Content that helps content marketers. I could go on and on. Yeah, right? like, it's crazy. Way, way, way. We are, I think we are at truly at risk of dying of indigestion. Like, I think indigestion is a the biggest thing holding Moz back. Yeah. Um, and I would love to see us be able to focus. It, it is very, very hard at an organizational level, uh, and, you know, from a business and revenue standpoint to go from, hey, we have multiple products and multiple tools in, as part of different subscriptions and we're sort of operating in a few adjacent industries and we need to shut it all down and focus on one thing. That's, mm. that's real hard to do if you've already entered those fields and um, you know, I think if I were made CEO tomorrow, I would have a real tough time following my own advice. (laughs) Insanely difficult um, and probably very demoralizing and very distracting and very, very challenging um, for the first couple of years. And and maybe only after that would we get the benefits of focus. But I could go back in time. That, that's what I do. Yeah. I think one of the obvious benefits is that if you focus on one product, it makes your marketing job a hell of a lot simpler, doesn't it? Oh my God, right? Because I can't imagine your, your fucking briefs, dude. Jeez, hectic. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Pretty, pretty insane. Yeah. Cool. Um, let's talk about, um, uh, you know, your early days of Mars. Um and uh, you describe how in 2007 uh, you were very conservative. You got some funding uh, and you were very conservative with your spending. Um, in hindsight, was that a mistake and what would you do differently? Um, no, I don't think it was a mistake to be conservative with spending um, after our first venture round. In fact, I think we, we played it pretty close to right. You know, we were, um, I would say, about. We had around $200,000 uh, in the bank when we turned turned around back to profitability. Uh, that was at the end of 2008. Um, and, you know, that felt a little, a little risky, but not too bad. It was, it was probably right on. So, yeah, I would, 
I would urge that caution again. I, I think that a lot of startups do get nudged to burn through their capital real fast to try and show quick growth. Um, and I think it is much safer from a survivability standpoint to burn slower, uh, stay conservative. You know, it's, it's sort of weird that you get this like odd pressure from not just from you know your investors, but like almost from the VC industry and from the um, the culture and community community of Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Right? They exert this kind of pressure on all startups that have raised money at at various times in different ways. So when you know the economy's hot and venture funding is hot. They are throwing a lot of money and expecting very fast growth and expecting you to burn that money in order to show fast growth so you can raise the next round. Mm. When things are tough and tight and you know, uh, investment is contracting and the economy is tough, they you know, expect you to be very conservative with your spend, to um, you know, get to profitability, uh, and to not worry so much about getting to growth. You just need to survive until the market conditions improve, and then you can raise another round and go fast with growth. This doesn't serve anyone's interests except certain segments of the venture capital world. And I would urge you to resist it at all costs. Don't don't be distracted by whatever their their culture and their pressure is. most of the time when you raise early stage VC and even mid stage VC, you are not in a position where you're going to, where you can be, um, you know, kicked off your own board of directors and voted out as CEO and that kind of stuff. So I would, I would stick to your guns, but be transparent with your board. I, you know, if I were raising money for another company, I would say, Hey, guess what? I, um, don't plan to give control of the board to the CEO seat. If I'm going to resign, it'll be because I want to, uh, that is not, you know, um, an option for this board. And if you want to be an investor alongside on that journey, great. But if you don't, also great. No problem. I totally understand that you, you feel like you need that control. Second, um, we are going to run this company uh, close to profitability. So meaning, yes, we would t- raise some money so that we can burn some capital. Um, and uh, but our intent is to get profitable and then to stay near that. We would not be someone who would, you know, pour dollars on and be burning millions a month mm. uh, in order to get in- insane growth. That's not how I like to run companies. I think it is too risky giving, given market volatility and the whims of investors and how funds work. Um, mm. And I'd much rather be in this for the long term than, you know, fizzle out or be the rocket ship. Yeah. Um, it's just a, not the way I want to run a company. And if there's investors who are on board with that, great. You know, let's do it together. And if there's not, that's okay too. Yeah. Well, Zirchel ran into that problem, didn't they? Uh, Maren Kate was CEO at the time. Oh, uh, Remember Zirchel, yeah. the virtual assistant service? And they got I, funding not- and then they grew so fast that they literally... <laughs> the carbon copy of what you was, what you were describing, and eventually yeah. they couldn't pay the people. They literally couldn't sustain the business. Um, so um, I'm actually hoping hoping to interview her uh, in the next few weeks. So I'm going to explore that a bit more. But that was exactly a case in point. Uh, it was just burning through capital to grow, and hence ran into problems. Yeah. 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 Cool. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one. Yeah. Um, one more question uh, for you, and then we'll move on to the community questions, if you don't mind. Um, there's an acronym that is synonymous with Mars called 
tag fee, I think that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how did that come about and what was its role in the founding culture of, uh, of Moz? Um, so we did not actually develop tag fee until I think it was 2008. So the year after we raised investment from, um, from ignition, but you know, tag fee is sort of a, um, it's a codification of the core values that, um, that we hold, that I hold. Um, and as a, you know, it's, it's kind of the manifestation of that and, something that we can point to and say, uh, this activity or this decision is or is not tag fee, right? It is or is not transparent or generous or empathetic um, or fun. And, and that's uh, kind of a, a guiding principle for us. It's the architecture by which we can um, frame and know if our decisions are correct or incorrect. And we've, you know, I, I would say used it very heavily since it was developed, but it wasn't, it wasn't initially there in the founding. of the Okay. Alrighty. Cool. Um, sorry, one more. I've got to ask you, Will Reynolds, good friend of yours. Um, <laughs> you uh, swapped companies or you, you know, both CEOs and you swapped the roles for, for a week. Um, him obviously being CEO of CEO Interactive. Uh, very quickly, what did you learn from that experience? Oh, very quickly. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I'm trying to get through. I'm conscious of time. <laughs> yeah, so let's see. I, I would say uh, you learn a tremendous amount about someone else, probably more than anything else when you take over their email inbox. I think there's <laughs> nothing, nothing more uh, challenging or you know, uniquely interesting than, than answering Will's email. And that includes, you know, I slept at his house and I walked his dog and... Yes. and and his company, right, and met with his clients and um, had one-on-ones with his employees. So one of his employees actually quit to me the week that I was uh, wow. CEO, right, which was wow. a strange experience for sure. <laughs> and um, the, yeah, but nothing, nothing was like the learning I got from answering Will's email. You know, it, that included uh, emails from his mom. It included <laughs> emails from clients. It included emails from... Uh, people in the industry, uh, from people who wanted him to come speak, from uh, you know internal employees uh, and, and and managers and team members. It was a, a a remarkable experience. I think the fastest way to gain empathy about someone is to answer their email for a week. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Okay, cool. Right. So, uh, community questions. Uh, Tarbo says, "Yeah, if you could start another SaaS business, what kind of business would you start, and why?" Yeah, I, you know, I I do love and I'm still passionate about the web marketing space, and so it would probably be in this space. Um, I have thought I've thought about a few uh, ideas in that realm. I think that uh, I'd love to see someone challenge Google Analytics at the specifically at the sort of um, small and medium business, and uh, you know, blogger, uh, informal website user like. Google Analytics is free. The switching costs are insane, which is why no one tries to compete with them at that at that low level. You know, for enterprises, there's a lot of analytics solutions yeah. uh, out there. But I would love to build um, a product that competes directly with Google Analytics at that low level. I think it's insanely hard. I think um, a lot of investors and customers alike would look and go, 
that's crazy. You should not do that. That's a dumb idea. And that's why it's a great idea. Um, I, I, I tend to love things that are very counterintuitive. Okay. Awesome. Uh, Pete says, he says, um, in the context of startups, what is the role of SEO today? Um, <clears throat> he says, for instance, do you see startups investing in SEO as a customer acquisition channel, for example? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you'd be, you'd be crazy not to. Uh, search is still, you know, driving a, a huge amount of the web's traffic. I think it's around 30, 35% according to similar web, which is dramatically massively more than all the social media platforms combined. Facebook obviously being most of that, but I think, um, you know, social media all in is driving around five or 6% of all traffic referrals to websites, uh, across the globe and search is yeah, 30, 35%. So, you know, just massively more search is also much more intentional, right? So search is, I want this thing right now. And if you provide a product that lots of people say, I want this thing right now, or I have this pain right now, or I need an answer to this question right now, and you know that answering that question or solving that pain point or providing that product can get them to be a customer of yours, you know, search is just an extraordinary channel. I actually think that this year, for some reason, it was kind of early in my career, uh, for like 15 years, there was just a, a strong bias in the startup world against SEO. Like it was somehow yes. dirty and wrong. You shouldn't do it. And in the last couple of years, that's been lifting, you know, startups of all kinds have just been sort of like, Oh yeah, SEO, I have to do that. That's a, that's a smart customer acquisition channel. I'm going to invest in it. Um, as a result, it's a lot more competitive, but uh, it does <laughs> seem like some of that illogical, you know, irrational fear or, um, um, ruling out SEO as an acquisition channel is kind of gone finally. Yeah. Okay. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it, it's a good thing for the startups that invest in it and can do well. I think it's tough for, um, you know, 10 years ago, if you were a startup that invested in SEO in your sector, you were probably one of only a few. And so it was much easier. Mm. Um, and so if you're, if you're one of those companies, you're probably pissed that now everybody <laughs> SEO is much harder. <laughs> Okay, awesome. Last question from the community. Uh, this one's from Amy. She says, what book have you gifted to someone else the most? Ooh, I think that is probably... There's two books. One's a, one's a business book that I've given to a number of colleagues. It's called um, The Billionaire Who Wasn't. It's, the, uh, it's a biography of uh, Chuck Feeney, who was the founder of duty-free, um, which is an, an odd business, but, but a fascinating story, and then uh, became what quite possibly the world's largest anonymous um, philanthropist. So a tremendous amount of the anonymous donations, uh, particularly in the United States, um, in the like late 80s into the mid-2000s uh, came from Chuck Feeney. And that... Uh, Eventually, you know, he stopped making anonymous donations and became a little more um, transparent about that and, and was actually the founder of um, what eventually became like a, the, the, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Warren Buffett and that group of philanthropists that all um, started the giving pledge together. He's kind of their, uh, their, their like founding father. Okay. Um, so fascinating guy. The awesome. second book... Um, it's a fiction book, but I can't... Why can I not remember the title right now? 
I'll uh, I'll tweet about it. Yeah, tweet it, tweet it. Yeah, um, and then um, yeah, I'll post a link to that uh, that book, the billionaire that never was. Okay, so rapid fire questions, and then I'll let you go, um, Rand. So uh, here we go. So when you hear the word successful, who do you think of and why? Huh. I know it's supposed to be rapid fire. I'm getting that a lot lately. I'm going to have to stop teeing them up as rapid fire. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Let's see. Um, So a friend of mine, uh, Dharmesh Shah, who Uh, was one of the co-founders of HubSpot. um, I think of him as successful, not just for his company accomplishments, but I I think he's also been very successful in accomplishing a lot of things in life. You know, he's a... um, um, he was an immigrant first to Canada and then and then moved to the United States um, and has an amazing marriage and um, and a great family as a son Sohan um, and a, a great group of friends and um, social connections despite being you know very deeply introverted um, and kind of a shy guy he's uh, yeah he's just a wonderful person who has helped a lot of other wonderful people okay so successful on all levels. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Okay. So contrary to that, who comes to mind when, uh, when you think of the word punchable? Punchable. (laughs) I mean, it's pretty hard not to go with Donald Trump these days. (laughs) um, It's unbelievable. (laughs) He's so not alone there. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but I feel like, I feel like he's, uh, He's easy going. Uh, uh, what's the leader of the Brexit movement? Was it uh, uh, Boris Johnson? Was it Boris Johnson or was it that Jermaine guy? Uh, I don't know, dude. Like, I only know the Boris guy. Okay. Go ahead, uh, Google. Leader Brexit campaign, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nigel Farage. Ah, uh, yes. So that, and, and, you know, Jeremy Corbyn a little bit too. But. Um, <laughs> Those guys, they, they feel pretty punchable right now because they're, you know, they're, they're going on TV and sort of saying like, oh, remember how we promised all that stuff? Yeah. Uh, about what, None of that is true. Yeah. Uh, you probably shouldn't have voted for yeah. this. And why did you ever believe us? We were yeah. totally yeah. untrustworthy. Yeah. And uh, by the way, there's no plan. Yeah. And, and by the way, there's no plan. No, no. Like they were pissed me off. Yeah, I, I mean, props to David Cameron. I think he, you know, he sort of left and was like, now you're going to take the fall for this shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was a pretty impressive move. Yeah, it was. Okay, cool. So if you could get into your time machine and go back to when you were 20, mm-hmm. uh, what, what, if, what one piece of advice would you give yourself uh, as a 20-year-old? Oh, I only get to give one? Yeah. Or, yeah, you can sum it up for him. You're in and out. It's the time oh. machine. You're moving on. <laughs> oh, God. Um, only one piece of advice. Uh, don't drop out of college, become a software engineer or you can drop out of college, but do it after you learn software engineering. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Good one. Um, second last question. What do people never ask you that you wish they did? Huh? People never ask me that I wish they did. Um, I'm definitely not going to tee this up as rapid fire again. <laughs> you know, I think that, um, I think that weirdly, so when I see, uh, 
interviewers of all kinds um, ask me questions about uh, Maz's success or my professional career, they they never ask me um, how do I balance uh, work and family. Um, how do I you know how do I uh, keep my marriage going well? Um, they never ask me you know how do you um, um, you know, maintain a good home. Like the questions that women entrepreneurs get, mm-hmm. even Sarah, right? Sarah's the CEO of Moz. Mm-hmm. She gets different questions than I get. It really pisses me off. I think if, you, if you're going to ask those questions to a woman, you should ask them to a man. I don't know why I don't get them. Yeah. Uh, okay. So yeah. how do you, how do you balance work and family? There you go. <laughs> no, no, it's only, I, I didn't mean it that way. You don't have to ask. It's okay. I'm trying to help. I would just say like, if you are interviewing women entrepreneurs, make sure you're not biasing your questions you know, <laughs> in, in a certain way. And that's not, you know, that's not to you in particular, Matt. It's just one of those <laughs> no, pet peeves that I have with interviewers that um, for some reason, I, I, you know, I think maybe it's natural. We all just kind of assume that there's these gender-based roles that people have. Wow. Um, to be honest, and it never crosses my mind, really. Uh, work-life balance is something that, I don't know, it's for some reason, it's, I, I innately, ex- if you're successful, you do that. You know, you're married. Yeah, well, you're I think this married, is... I'm married, um, you know? It's really interesting because it, you make a great point. I do get asked about work-life balance. What I don't get asked about is how do you balance work and family? Or how do you maintain your marriage well, right? It's, it's really... It means kind of the same thing, but there's that nuance there of, you know, a man must be balancing work and life, right? And life could mean a bunch of things. But if it's a woman, it must be, you know, family or marriage or kids or, you know, whatever it is, right? Like that, that somehow it's it, the work-life balance is not the question that gets asked. That's yeah. kind of a, a question that gets asked to men. Okay. So, I, make- yeah, it's very, very interesting. It's sort of a weird... Um, it's, yeah, it's like a socially social conditioning thing for some reason. Yes, yes, and, and something, probably something worth breaking out of. Yeah, exactly. Totally agree. Well, there's this huge movement towards diversity in the workplace. Um, so I think, yeah, thank God, uh, yeah. you know, only hundred years too late. But <laughs> no. okay, cool. So last question, uh, Rand, and then I'll let you go. Um, what is your why as an entrepreneur? What gets you out of bed in the morning? <laughs> uh, Guilt. I am <laughs> by guilt. That is, um, you know, it's like uh, caffeine and cocaine for me. Guilt drives a, a ton of my behavior. I feel um, guilt about the past. I feel guilt about the, um, you know, the returns that I owe my investors about the, you know, stock that I want my employees to uh, have that, you know, will be worth a tremendous amount to them and help them. Um, in their future careers and in their finances. Um, I feel guilt towards uh, our customers that I, I don't give them a better product and better data. Uh, I feel guilt toward the industry that I'm not moving it forward more and helping more. Um, so, yep, I am, I am powered by guilt. Okay. Is there, is there not an a, a, a under thread or undercurrent of kind of making a difference in mixed in there somehow? Yeah, yeah, no, I think, I think making a difference is important. But if you ask, like, why do you want to make such a difference, right? Why do you feel that need? I think that for some people, it's like they, they have this pride or they need recognition yeah. um, or they want success, you know, from a, from a financial standpoint or that kind of thing. And for me, like, the, the overwhelming emotion that I always feel around why do I need to make such a difference is I feel guilty not doing it. 
Yeah. I feel like I owe, right. That, that my life is, I owe big time. Um, and I'm not sure exactly where that comes from, but that's, that's just part of who I am. Okay. Awesome. Well, we love who you are. I loved uh, your time with us today on the Digital Kung Fu Show. And uh, yeah, Rand, thank you so much for your time. I really, really found um, this incredibly insightful and I'm sure many of the, the listeners will as well. Awesome, man. Great talking to you, Matt. Take care. Yeah, you too, mate. Take it easy. Ciao. Remember that the Digital Kung Fu Show is now on iTunes, so head on over there now and leave us a review. You can also catch the Digital Kung Fu Show on player.fm, Stitcher, and cliffcentral.com. Thanks for listening to the Digital Kung Fu Show. If you'd like to check out more episodes and get access to our growing community of entrepreneurs working together to succeed in business, then please visit our website at www.digitalkungfu.co.za. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.